Hi everyone, welcome back to Elias Anthropology. It's me, the host, Nicholas. I hope that you've been, you know, having good days since the last time we talked, which was two weeks ago, I think, uh, was the last episode. I've been really... I was talking with uh, one of my colleagues about this and they asked me about the upload schedule this season and I said I've been kind of going every other week because I think that the episodes this season have been really long which was something at the end of season one that I was loving like how long it was getting and I hated that recording in the studio context was making it so that the episodes had to be capped Like, we kind of needed to move through certain things to kind of get to an end, wrap it up, you know, by a certain amount of time, because obviously the studio uh, costs money, there's scheduling limitations, whatever. Um, And so this season, I was really excited to be able to sort of get into a flow and just let the conversations go kind of more like a Lex Friedman style of podcasting. Um, But with that being said, I wanted to kind of meet my audience halfway by not releasing as frequently so that people could have time to listen to the episodes before the next one came out. Um, Not that they all run together so seamlessly. You can always go back and forth, listen to a little bit of this, listen to a little bit of that, kind of jump through the seasons uh, or jump through the episodes and jump through the seasons, I guess. Um, But I wanted to make it at least possible to listen to the the episodes in order. And so in order to do that, I decided to release um, on a bi-weekly basis, which for season three, uh, we'll see, I don't know what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do as far as uploading cadence, because I'm thinking that this was cool, but I liked uploading every week just because I like to talk with you guys every week. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but this is the final episode of season two. So if you had any thoughts about, the way that these episodes came out feel free to share them with me um podcasts don't have comments and spotify they have comments if you're listening on spotify i think you can leave a comment um or on my instagram at official nicholas one or if you know me personally which i think the audience of this podcast is probably about 65 or 70 percent all people who know me personally you can just text me and tell me what you think so today's episode is going to be one of the more uh we'll say like political episodes i want to talk uh, more of the anthropology than the elitism i want to talk about italy so i went to italy in the summer i went to rome that was my third time in the country the first time i went to the south so like naples sorrento um capri and then the second time i went to milan i was only there for a day i was with my cousin shout out to tyvel we were in milan just for a day and then this time i went to rome and I was in Rome for five days at the end of my uh, Mediterranean adventure that we discussed a little bit earlier in the season. RIP to the Istanbul episode. I wanted to make an episode about Istanbul, but when I thought about it, I was like, I just really don't have anything to say. <laughs> I don't, no notes. I don't have anything to say. And I don't know enough about... Um, I don't know enough about Turkey. I don't know enough about the Muslim world. I don't know enough about Islam. I don't know enough about that, those kind of regional politics to just say anything that I thought would be interesting or entertaining. So no Turkey episode, but maybe, I don't know, maybe in the future I will record one. Anyway, 
Uh, so I was at the end of my Mediterranean Odyssey, my Iliad journey, and I got to Rome. And like I said, I had been to Italy before, so I was like a little bit familiar with how things worked, even though I had never been to Rome specifically. Um, but I kind of came just with the agenda of, I'm just going to chill. Like, I'm just going to hang out, kind of see. I didn't book too much stuff. I didn't plan too much stuff. I just wanted to catch a vibe and relax before I knew I had to come home and I had to work. And at that time, I thought a bunch of other things were going to happen, so I needed to prepare for a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. So I was like, I'm just going to chill. Some of the things that I did while I was in Rome, I went to see Tosh Sultana, which I keep talking about. I try to tell all my friends about her. I think she's so dope. She's from Australia. I think she's like the female Tame Paul is how I would describe her. So I went to see her at one of the um, Olympic stadiums, which was really, really amazing. Um, I went to the Vatican. Pro tip about the Vatican. If you're Christian, um, you don't have to wait in line. There's a line. It's an Italian um, I think it's in Italian and it might be in Spanish. I don't think it was in English, but I could I could read it. So it must have been in Spanish. Maybe it was in Italian and I could just read it because it was pretty close to Spanish. But basically, there's a line for believers, pregnant women, people giving an offering. So I guess technically you don't even have to be Christian if you're giving an offering. I guess, but why? Would, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> if you're giving an offering... Um, there's a separate line for you and there's nobody in it. So there's all these tourists that are standing in the line. The line goes around and around the plaza outside the Vatican. And then there's one line that literally has no one. It will look like it's closed. I was standing in the line for just everyday people. I saw the sign. Um, oh, and I remember what called my attention to the sign was that it also had like the dress code on it, like what you could wear and what you couldn't. And at that time I was standing in the line, I was wearing a tank top because it was extremely hot in Rome. It was, I mean, it was extremely hot in, in the world on planet earth this summer, but because that's where I was, I was like, damn, it's hot here. I thought it wouldn't be as hot as I was living in Texas at the time. So I thought it wouldn't be as hot as Texas because I was like, oh, it's like kind of Mediterranean. But Rome is like actually like pretty inland. Like it's not that close to the sea. Um, and it was hot. So I was wearing a tank top also because I had biked there, which shout out to the city bikes in, in Rome. I'm a big fan. They have, I think they're Lime bikes or maybe there's some Italian company who bought the Lime bikes, but they're green and white like Lime bikes. I, um I had ridden there, whatever, I'm standing in the line, I see that I can't wear a tank top inside of the sanctuary, so I was like, okay, let me go get a shirt, but on that sign, I think I also saw the thing that said, oh, line for believers, so I go get my shirt, uh, it's my I Heart Rome shirt, you can see it on my Instagram, if you go look, I think I still have that picture up, is anybody else like a, a mood archiver, hold up, I'm taking some coffee, So obviously there's posting on your Instagram, like you post on your Instagram the way that you want to be represented, right? Okay. But then because you can archive and unarchive at will, do you ever find yourself archiving and unarchiving given the type of vibes that you feel that you, you want your page to have at a certain time? Because sometimes I want my page to be extremely music focused. Maybe I'm pitching for a lot of stuff. I'm trying to book something. I'm sending people out my Instagram. And so I need it to look more like a musician's resume kind of thing. So I'm pulling, I'm unarchiving all the music posts so everybody can see. At other times, I'm trying to be in my journalist bag. And so I have all of the elitist anthro posts unarchived so people can see that like, oh, this is a person's uploading consistently. People are engaging with this, different guests, everything like that. Sometimes like if I'm, if I just gave my, if I went to like a party or something and I met a lot of people, 
and I know that they're going to be looking at my Instagram and I want to seem like I'm super cool and worldly or whatever. I'm, un, I'm, you know, finding my best photo dumps to pull out, but I may not leave them on my page at all times, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> all of that to say that I think a picture with my Art Room t-shirt, because I've been wearing it all every day, um, should be up. So I go to buy the t-shirt. I come back. I ask the guy, oh, is this the line for the believers? He's like, yeah, it, it is, I guess. I go in. Then once people saw me like walk out of the line, then more people started coming up and asking him. So I think he got annoyed. Um, what else did I do? I went swimming a lot. I went swimming like two times in Rome. Uh, there's like a really cool, I really, I'm really into public pools. I don't know if that's a thing to be into, but I, in New York, I used to go to the public pool in Williamsburg, the one that's inside of McCarran Park. A lot of people don't know that it's there. At least, I think a lot of people that are not from New York don't know that it's there. But me and my friend Raylan went one time. Actually, we went twice. We had a great time. And then I went when I was in... Um, no, I didn't go when I was in Paris. I tried to go when I was in Paris, but like it was still kind of cold. But in Rome, I found one. It was like 10 euro maybe less to get in it was super nice you could like see the vatican from it it was like amazing i went there a couple times i was eating everything <laughs> i i find that the north eastern italy is where the good food is i was unimpressed with the food in naples and um Sorrento and stuff, unimpressed. Milan, also the same thing, kind of whatever. But in Rome, I started to see the vision, which is crazy because I love Italian food. But I just thought maybe I just like, you know, I like Italian American food and same thing. Like I like Tex Mex. I mean, I like Mexican Mexican food too. But like when I think of like, ooh, I want to go eat something Mexican, I'm like, I want some tacos. Uh, I want some quesadilla, like nachos, you know what I'm saying? Like, not like traditional. I'm not like, ooh, damn, I could really use some mole right now. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. That's not me. Um, and the same thing <laughs> with Italian food, where I'm like, I like, I want some lasagna. I want some cacio e pepe, uh, which I guess isn't Italian American, but I just thought I must just like it the way that they make it in America more. And this real Italian shit is just not really for me until I got to Rome. The food was busting. It was amazing. I can't give up my spots here on um, the podcast because you guys know I like to gatekeep, but kind of the same thing. If you know me, hit me up. I'll tell you where to go. There's this one particular bar that was amazing. I didn't eat there. I was drinking there. But I, so I, w I went to this bar uh, before the Taj Sultana concert because how to get to the stadium was like a little bit weird. You couldn't just get there off public transit. I, from where I was staying, I like took a train and then walked like 20 minutes. Whatever. It was a whole thing. But there's this one bar, and it's, like, in a park in the middle of the street. I don't know. It's kind of weird. And then around the corner, because the first time I went to the bar, it was, like, so packed. I was, like, no, I don't want to go there. So I was, like, where can I go eat? Oh, because it was also a restaurant. So I went around the corner to this restaurant that was just the nearest one. It was amazing. Then after the concert, I went back to that bar because, like, everybody at the concert was just, like, walking in the same direction. I went to that bar. like, had a drink. It was cool. Then I went back there again later in the week just because I was bored. Because, like I said, I didn't really plan anything. I was just reading, chilling, vibing. Um, I went to see a movie. They were showing West Side Story in the park, like the original West Side Story. Very racist. <laughs> 
very racist movie. I mean, I thought that the music and stuff was pretty good, um, except for the lead. He couldn't sing. Um, the brown face in that movie was like kind of shocking. I, I knew that I had heard, I guess, whenever they had made the remake that that was a part, like that was like a positive thing that had changed was that they had actually just cast, you know, uh, brown, browner toned, darker skinned Puerto Rican actors to play the Puerto Ricans in the movie, which I was like kind of laughing at because it's like they did that and then they cast Rachel Zegler to be the lead and she's like white looking. I don't, <laughs> I thought it was all very strange. And it was crazy because I was sitting, I was in a film class actually at the time and our professor was, um, much older than us. And obviously we were in college and she was a professor and, but she remembered when the first West Side Story came out and she was like, y'all like, that was my shit. Like you don't understand. And me and these two girls in the class, they were both black girls. We were like, yeah, we think the casting like kind of fucking sucks. And she was like, why? And we were like, because she was saying, like, isn't it so good that they casted a real Puerto Rican in the role of Maria? And we were like, well, like, I guess, which I don't know if Rachel Zegler even is Puerto Rican, but Lat- I think she's some type of Latina. Um, but we were like, I mean, I guess that's fine. But it's like, she's supposed to be Puerto Rican. Like, why cast a white passing looking woman to play that role? Why not cast? I mean, even it doesn't even like it can still be someone who is extremely beautiful um and can sing really well but you know look at um what is her name look at ariana debose so look at ariana debose and look at rachel zegler they look extremely different but they're supposed to be you know from the same you know milieu uh it just was it just was strange like why why go through the cycles of redoing the movie and kind of halfway fix the brown face problem only to then still cast two white leads. I have the same issue actually with Killers of the Flower Moon, which no no shot <laughs> no shots at, at Lily Gladstone. Um I, I actually thought that movie was really, really great. I cried. I was I was so into it. I thought it was actually really amazing. Um, but I do think that there's like some interesting politics around making this movie that's supposed to be, um, not a form of justice because it's not a form of justice, but just making this movie that's supposed to try to accurately represent something and then casting a white passing native woman to play that role. Um, and I, I don't want to say that it's brown face because I haven't seen anybody else say that. So I don't want to be the one to throw the first stone. But I think Lily Gladstone looks very different in the promotional images for the movie versus the images that have been taken to promote her Oscar campaign. And in her Oscar campaign, she looks like a white woman. And in her promotional video promotional things for the movie it looks like her skin has been darkened to um be more aligned with the osage image and she doesn't look like her sisters in the movie all of her sisters are dark-skinned dark-eyed and she has white skin and blue eyes it's just very very strange same thing with west side story and i was thinking about that i wasn't thinking about kills of the flower when i watched that but i was thinking about that when i watched the movie so i actually ended up leaving early um because I found it hard to sit through with the brown face. Anyway, overall, I loved my time in Italy. I was definitely living my Dolce Vita. Um, 
But the reason why I wanted to record this episode, why I thought it might be something interesting to talk about, is because when I was there, I was getting kind of a weird vibe. I was getting a very weird vibe in that I couldn't kind of tell, like, the economic situation was very hard to put my finger on. There were a lot of tourists there, obviously, because I was in Rome, and I definitely interacted with way less locals than I did when I was in Athens or when I was in Istanbul. Way more foreigners, um, Im- foreigners as in immigrants to Italy, foreigners as in um, tourists. Um, the people that were in the service industry were way less talkative. And that's not a, I'm not saying that it's a pejorative, but like in Athens, I would be sitting in the car and a person just starts, the cab driver just starts telling me about everything that happened in his life. In Italy, not so much. I could only assume because of the language barrier probably. And also there's so many more tourists in Rome than in Athens, or at least it feels that way, like the ratio. So they probably are not going to want to open up to every single person that gets in their car. But it just made me want to dig a little deeper, try to figure out kind of what's going on here. Um, if you'll remember, in 2022, Italy sort of hit the the, the world news uh, because of the election of a one Georgia Maloney. Georgia Maloney was the woman who was elected to prime minister. She was going to be leading the country. And people said that she was basically the first woman elected in the strongman she was the first female strongman she was the first woman king and she uh, was basically a um, harbinger of fascism and oppression in Italy so I thought hmm am I feeling am I feeling that here am I feeling that now but I was like I don't really know because everything is in Italian it's very hard to tell what's going on because everything is in Italian and you'll remember um in the previous episode when I was talking to Jamie I was telling her about this and how the accessibility of news and media storytelling and even of social discourse through social media the accessibility of that because of because English for better or for worse, is the world language, right? I I say that in quotations. I don't mean to be a Western supremacist, but in many countries, English is the shared language um, amongst different groups, different blocks of countries. It's the language of business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. American culture, ideas, discourse spread easily, spread fastly, and people are able to develop their own ideas about what happens in America, American politics, American news, so much and so forth, because they can understand it, what happens, right? Americans, though, don't really have a broader perspective on the world, in a way, because other languages are not really taught here for us to be able to understand and use them right so there would be no reason why there would be no reason why i would turn on the news for example in italy and even if i was just in my hotel be able to casually listen and sort of get a feel or a vibe for for what's going on it's not really something that could happen whereas like vice versa an italian who's on vacation in america might understand a couple of words of english pretty well and they could listen to a news and be like okay so this is happening that is happening that's who this is that's who that is etc 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 so i'm getting all these weird vibes in italy 
I'm eating good. I'm swimming. I'm seeing some racism in West West Side Story. I'm seeing the society itself. Like, the Italians are a little bit older. It's an aging society. So I'm seeing the Italians, seeing the foreigners, I'm seeing the locals. And I'm thinking, like, I want to dive into this. Let me start researching. So where does my research start? Well, actually, before my research started, I, I started to think of a question. And the question was, what makes a country Western? Is it a geographic location? Is it a personal identity? Is it a openness or willingness to participate in the global order? Um, Or is it like civil rights and liberties, right? Any idea within the civil society that makes a country Western? Like what is Westernism and what makes someone a part of it? And I think Italy is a great country to study with that question because there are so many contradictions, right? Its location is in one place, its willingness to participate in global trade is like in another place. Its history is similar to other Western countries um, and its um, civil liberties situation is interesting. But Italy itself doesn't get discussed on the global stage. I would say primarily, literally primarily because all of its politics and news Um, And most of its civil discourse happens in Italian, which they really only speak in one place in the world. So let's talk about Georgia Maloney. Georgia Maloney is the current prime minister of Italy. Uh, She's fairly young. I believe she's in her early 40s. She has blonde hair and she has blue eyes. She was raised born and raised in Italy. She uh, was raised in a, in a home without a father, which normally is not something that I would bring up about someone, but it is kind of relevant to the way that her politics are shaped or it creates an interesting um, contradiction, I would, I would say. She's been associated or involved with right, we'll say like ranging from conservative to hard right politics um with the hard right being like the Mussolini not even sympathizing but the Mussolini aligning uh version of Italian politics all the way just from the sort of like right of center types of policies and she's been working in politics since she was a teenager well when she was a teenager we would say that she participated in advocacy participated in different types of conservative advocate groups until she became adult, at which time she got involved with Italian politics and then actually was joined into um, right-leaning parties. The current party that she's at the helm of is actually called the Brothers of Italy. And even that, that's interesting, right? So she founded this party. She was part of the founding of this party and called it the Brothers of Italy. And I think that in Italian culture you have a very interesting type of patriarchy. And what makes it interesting is that at the same time, and maybe it's the influence of Catholicism, at the same time that there is mother worship, not just in Catholicism with Mary, which Catholicism is the primary religion of the country. The Vatican is there. The Pope is based there. It's like the home of Catholicism. Um, after the schism, it became the the center of the Christian world in a way, Rome. Tons of Christian history there. So in the and it's interesting, like in the way that you have the worship, absolute worship of the mother. And I've watched a lot of you <laughs> I watched a lot of YouTube videos. There is a, a interesting I mean, it's not solely reduced to uh, Italian culture. I think the relationship between mothers and sons, boy-mom culture, is 
prevalent in lots of societies all over the world, but it is extremely present in Italy as well, where men worship and revere their mothers and constantly view themselves in relationships to their mothers and try to recreate their romantic relationships with their, you know, girlfriends and wives as recreations of the relationships that they have with their mothers. So the female has a strong place in society. Um, but when it comes to civil society in political life, it is the man that is lifted up. And maybe that goes back to the foundations of Rome, Romulus and Remus being the founders of Rome. There's this idea that men are meant to lead and the country lives its life through the male identity. Thus, the brothers of Italy. So she founded the brothers of she founded the brothers of Italy and in preparation of being able to ascend to the prime ministership, like I said, it was it was right to hard right. She actually started to implement reforms within the party in order to make it more palatable to push it more towards that right. Right. So so push it from hard right, the brothers of Italy, Mussolini affinities to more towards just standard conservatism that could appeal to a wider range. And one of the main um, reforms that she did was banning the so-called uh, Roman salute. The Roman salute was basically identical to the Hitler salute of the Third Reich. So she banned that in order to make the party more palatable. And eventually she was actually elected to the prime ministership. And Georgia Maloney's politics have shifted over time so started hard right one of her uh quotes that was extremely popular um as she was being elected was quote yes to the natural family no to the lgbt lobby no to gender ideology and no to the bureaucrats of brussels so that's like extremely <laughs> that's extremely extremely conservative um something similar to what we would hear from politicians from america's conservative sphere from like a ted cruz or a ron DeSantis, specifically around the no to the lgbt lobby no to the gender ideology and no to the bureaucrats of brussels and when she says no to the bureaucrats of brussels she's talking about a rejection of the eu the EU versus states could be analogous to an, in America, like no to a federal government, the federal sense of government that takes away sovereignty from individual states to make laws, and yes to us as a state pursuing our own agenda and placing our needs first. Because obviously, when you're working within a cooperative governmental system, you do have to cede some strength to that, right? If you are working within a broader system, the system sometimes has to decide things that you will not necessarily agree with. And in, I won't say most European countries, but in many European countries where conservative parties are in power, they typically uh, disseminate an anti-EU stance because the EU, and actually this is an interesting kind of analogy that I'm just thinking of, I think in groups... In, in large groups, most people from the Western world, TM, which even though we're discussing what is Western, I would say Europe generally is Western, America generally is Western, Canada probably also generally Western, most groups are actually closer to center-left, like center-left-leaning 
most, right? If you put them all into a really big group and then you took a poll, they're going to come out a little bit center left, especially on issues around healthcare, uh, child care, wages, should wages go up, should social services be available to people, like that's more of the center stance, which is actually far away from the general conservative ideology that exists in the Western sphere. And that's also too why you see in America that a lot of Republican, um, a lot of Republican political tactics revolve around reducing the amount of people that are able to vote because they know that when it all shakes out, the general populace does not share their ideology. So they need to bring the amount of voters down. That way they have a more likely chance of being able to gain the majority. And the same thing actually exists in Italy and in many countries, that same dynamic exists. And so that's why she has such a strong anti-EU stance because when all of the countries come together, their decisions come out a little bit left of center, which is diametrically opposed in many ways to the hard right. Now, that was at the beginning of her term or or her ascent towards uh, power. This was like, I think, early 2022. She becomes the prime minister because basically her party was the only one that opposed the previous prime minister the way that he handled COVID. Italy Italy and the Italian discourse broadly considers the way that COVID was handled to be like bad. I won't use the word disaster, but negative. People were not happy with it and the outcomes of it. Now, could the government have navigated that situation better? Sure. So could the American government. I think most people in most countries would agree that their government could have done it better. But hindsight is twenty twenty, And of course, there was a huge reactionary turn similar, again, to the way that there was in America. We had Donald Trump after COVID disaster and other things too, but honestly, I, I think mainly COVID, mainly COVID. If COVID had not happened or it had happened differently, I don't think it would have been so sure that um, Joe Biden would have become the president, but it happened the way it happened. Donald Trump is deposed. Similar thing happens in Italy. It happened the way it happened. The previous prime minister, the previous um, governing party is deposed and the brothers of Italy are able to take control. Um, And so Maloney's coalition actually claimed 44% of the total vote and Italy's electoral mix of the first past the post majority rule and proportional representation guaranteed that the brothers of Italy led government would command a majority in both houses of the Italian parliament. So she wins. Now, what's been interesting since that time is that her politics um, in ways that are outward facing again right so we talk about this dichotomy we talk about it's just me on this podcast but as i was saying earlier about not being able to perceive a country's true nature without speaking their language because an inaccess to media and to culture doesn't really represent what's really going on and what makes um what can make international Um, ideas or opinions of American politics so prevalent is the fact that they happen in English and more people have access to them. Many people don't speak Italian. I don't speak Italian. So, excuse me, they're not involved with the internal discussions of Italy. And so a clever prime minister who wants to increase their station in global politics while simultaneously advancing their um, conservative, hard right-leaning agenda at home what would they do? 
they would simply split. They would take two stances at the same time, knowing that anyone outside of their linguosphere, did I just create that term? Anyone outside of their linguosphere um, would really not be able to intervene in a meaningful way to their conservative agendas at home. So what's changed in the time that Giorgio Maloney has become the leader, the, the leader of Italy? One, she's no longer Eurosceptic. Nicholas, what do you mean she's no longer Eurosceptic? She's working with the EU and the Dutch on the migrant crisis and working extremely closely negotiating with them, working to make deals in order to reduce the flow of migrants. Now, you might say, why would she do that? Well, the migration it, the migration issue in Italy is enormous, similar to Athens, actually very similar to Turkey. Um, migrants coming across of com- migrants coming across the Mediterranean trying to get into the EU has been um, a huge policy issue, we'll say, for everyone in the EU for the last 10 years. The way that Italy has dealt with this before was similar to Athens, basically detain, deport. Now, they're in a process of actually trying to shift the responsibility. This is not just the Italians, but also the British with their Rwanda... uh, I don't even know what it's called, where they're trying to send all the migrants back to Rwanda. It's, It's crazy. But... Now, they're trying to work with the African nations in North Africa, Tunisia, Libya, Algeria, to actually fund their militaries and their coast guards to be able to stop the migrants from coming. Now, why would... Scratching my... Scratching your... Scratching your face. Nicholas, Nicholas, Nicholas. Why? 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 Would they want to give hundreds of millions of euros to these states to handle this immigration crisis? And the, the reason, if you ask me, is twofold. The first is, or if I was thinking of it from Maloney's perspective, the first is, is that managing the bureaucracy that would ex- that exists around having a migrant infrastructure is enormous. So if you're a conservative or you're hard, you're hard right, one um, tenet of this ideology is like to be against big government and to be against bu- bureaucracy, right? And there has to be huge amounts of bureaucracy around how to manage a political crisis such as this, right? So if you outsource this work, just like any sort of outsourcing, if you outsource this work to people working in the North African region, then A, you can pay them less, B, you don't have to manage the bureaucracy, and C, nobody has rights. So part of the EU, the identity of the EU, part of the West, is this idea of human rights. Human rights emerged after World War II, or not, human rights, <laughs> human rights didn't emerge after World War II. Human rights as a political framework that should be enforced and respected across different systems of laws, uh, particularly in the West, emerged after World War II. And most of the, I'm saying most, but it might be all of the courts or the international, uh, the international organizations and courts that try to enforce human rights, that try to try people for their human rights crimes, for their war crimes, are inside of Europe. Uh, the biggest one being The Hague, which is in the Netherlands. So, when something happens in Europe, generally, 
broadly, it is assumed or considered that any person is going to be treated with human rights, but actually more importantly, any person who violates those human rights is going to have to face consequences. So when Georgia Maloney says that the uh, she's saying no to the bureaucrats of Brussels, specifically when it relates to the climate issue, and, and Greece has had this uh, turbulence, Turkey has had this turbulence too, where they say, you are not allowed to the EU. You are not allowed to legislate and decide the way that I must treat the migrants that are causing X, Y, and Z impact to my country. If I don't have the money to handle them in the, uh, not delicate, but in the dignified, quote unquote, way that you require, and I can't send them to you, which is that the other European states don't want to accept these migrants, right? It's not like they can all get on a bus and roam and they can all get on a bus and roam and then Georgia Maloney can just send them to uh, Germany. Although Germany has taken a lot of immigrants, so, but that's just an example. If I can't do that, right, then you don't have the right to legislate. It's up to me to do what I got to do. And what I want to do is um, detain, deport. That's what I want to do. I don't want to invest money into infrastructure that is clean, safe. Think back to the episode on Athens, on Athens when I talked about the island of Lesbos. I don't want to um, have to administer justice. Again, think back on Lesbos. I don't want to have to build infrastructure for these people. I want to send them back. And more importantly, I want to make it so that they can't even get here. All of that turns into the Rome process. So the Rome process, I'm just scrolling down in my notes. The Rome process um, correlates with this thing called the Matei Plan. The Matei Plan, also something coming out of the Maloney government, which is essentially outsourcing migrant management to the countries of North Africa. And what's interesting now, though, again, is that because Georgia Maloney has articulated um, some of the correct Western European stances, such as being anti-Russia, She's anti-Russia primarily because Italy had already moved their primary their primary natural gas importer to Algeria, so they had offboarded Russia completely, which makes it very easy to take an, an anti-Russian stance. But she articulates an anti-Russian stance. She articulates an anti-Chinese stance, which is mostly just because <laughs> she's racist. <laughs> and Italians are um, not all Italians, but in Italy. There is a, in Italy and in Western Europe in general, um, and this existed pre-COVID, but it was definitely expanded quite a bit after COVID, there is a very strong anti-Asian sentiment. Extremely strong. Um, I won't speak on it too much because I'm not super, I'm not super familiar, but it's something that I've seen. It's something that I've known people to experience. Um, and I think there's a lot of studies and podcasts and videos and stuff that you can listen to, to go learn more about that. But there's an extreme anti-Asian sentiment there for lots of reasons, racism primary among them. So she's anti-Russian, she's anti-Chinese. And as far as at least the United States is concerned, like that's enough. But she also has kind of flipped on the climate issue again leading to this like cooperation so she maloney or at least the way i interpret it wants to outsource this migration management to save money save time um protect quote-unquote protect the italian national identity which is racism see that under there also a little bit of um 
Christian nationalism because most of the migrants that are coming in are coming in from the Middle East and Africa where they are Muslim or they're practicing some um, other traditional religion that is not Christianity and Italy is a Catholic strong Catholic country and Meloni is a strong Catholic uh, woman as she says I am mother I am Christian and you can't take that away from me but in her speeches where she talks about this plan she says that one of the main things that we need to combat in order to um, reduce this migration is climate change hmm fascinating now at the same time that she's doing deals with the Libyan government, the Algerian government, the Tunisian government to get access to their natural gas and to their oil. She is publicly, now she does that in Italian, but in English, she says, we need to fight climate change. So we need to give this money to these North African governments and to other sub-Saharan governments. We need to, or sub-Saharan, I think is the right term, but the countries further south of them where the immigrants are coming from. We need to give them money to fight climate change so that the migrants stop coming. Which is it? Is it that climate change in the EU's perspective on climate change and um, policy management is important and should be supported? And so we need to work within the policy apparatuses to make meaningful change. Or is it that by perform, excuse me, by performing in English, a pro-climate, pro-EU stance, you're able to get other Western powers to sign on to your agenda, which is really based in gaining control gaining control of um, natural resources as they flow across the Mediterranean into, the, into Europe through Italy um, and offshoring the cost of managing the migrants that are also coming, right? You want something from North Africa, but you don't want the people, you want the oil. How can you keep the people where they are and get the oil flowing. This is the real sort of work of Georgia Maloney. And so again, we we ask, right, what makes a country Western? Because in a way that is extremely American. <laughs> in a way, it is extremely American or extremely Western to extract resources um, while actively working to repress native populations. That's a very Western colonial kind of idea. On the other hand, investing money into developing nations so that they can better manage people, process, um, and place is also very Western and also aligns with EU ideas of um, global sustainable development. That's kind of flipping back and forth, flipping back and forth. And in Italy, you see that like the question hasn't been answered. Is it a Western country or is it a um, island? Is it a, an island proverbially, right? Does it stand alone? Because in some ways it aligns with European ideals of like fighting climate change. Um, in other ways, it's involved in EU problems such as managing the climate crisis. Um, but in a way, it's a little bit unto itself in the conservatism of its civil society. So now I want to talk about some of those. Um, I went a little bit out of order because it just flowed into talking about migration really well, but I want to talk about some of the conservatism that's existed in Italy. Uh, so you can't start with 
Giorgio Meloni until you go back to a man named Silvio Berlusconi. Did you guys like that little uh, accent? Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> so he was a, um, a, a perfect analogy to describe him is basically Donald Trump. He was a media magnet, billionaire type um, who built his own party based on the sort of like hard right populist perspective. When he came into power, his party merged. So they have a parliamentary government in Italy. And basically, if you're not familiar with the way parliamentary parliamentary governments work, generally, there are lots of different parties. So in America, we have a two party system. And people get elect, they run with a particular party, they get elected, and then the government's uh, kind of majority is basically just decided on individual districts that are elected and where they kind of shake out. So you could have a majority Republican or you could have a majority Democrat, and there's very few smaller parties that even get elected. And I don't know if it has ever been in modern history, let's say the last 60 years, um, that there has ever been um, more than one party with a significant portion. Oh, wait, does that make sense what I'm saying? There's always obviously only one party. can. There's always only been one party in the majority. That's what I'm trying to say. So one party is the majority. Either the Democrats are the majority or the Republicans are the majority. What happens a lot of the times in parliamentary governments is that no one party is the majority. So they have to form coalitions. And when they form coalitions, that's what becomes the majority and they have the power. But even within that coalition, obviously there's a power struggle. So Berlusconi's party which was called, um, I believe it was called M5S. I'm not sure how you would say that in Italian. But M5S basically had to merge with a bunch of other smaller conservative parties, which was a part, which Maloney was a part of at the time. Um, and so she ended up becoming a part of his government. So this is a media magnet who enters into the public space um, with a conservative lean and then casts a wide net of conservatives, bringing to the top with him the most far-right leaning and the most um, conservative. And they're willing to sort of put up with the shenanigans, even if they're what we would call real career, real politicians, right, who are really interested in doing the business of government, which I, I do think... Um, Georgia Maloney's style of conservatism is interesting because it's different from other styles of conservatism, which say that there should be no government. She doesn't believe that there should be no government. She believes that the government should do very particular and specific things, which puts her more towards the, I don't want to say the F word, but <laughs> puts her more towards fascism than say anarchism or libertarianism because she does believe that the state has a strong place in society and she thinks she knows what it should be doing and what it shouldn't be doing. Okay, so Silvio Berlusconi becomes the prime minister of Italy. He is a leader in, in Italian politics for decades and basically he was crazy. He was out here and he was doing whatever. He was having sex parties. He was stealing from the government. He was doing coke. Um, he had been tried for more. <laughs> he was doing coke. He had been tried more than a dozen times for fraud, false accounting, and bribery. 
Um, in several cases, he had seen convictions, but they were set aside because of the convoluted proceedings that led to trials being timed out by the statute of limitations, and at least twice because he himself changed the Italian laws. Um, so he, uh, there's this thing called um, Rubygate, where he was charged with having or with paying for sex with a minor. Like he was out here while and he was like if hunter biden had donald trump's politics and but was then also the president he was crazy <laughs> again i i bet i would imagine that this is probably the first time that you've ever heard the name if you're in if you're from the english-speaking world i bet this is the first time that you've heard the name silvio berlusconi and the reason what the reason why right why is that happening because where do what in what language do Italian courts take place? In what language are Italian court proceedings taking place? Why would you know who this person is? Again, going to the ways that um, the lack of understanding of a language or of a culture can just make it impossible for you to truly understand what's going on there. And conversely, the ways that access to language or culture can make you believe that you have a greater understanding than you do. Because I often encounter people have strong ideas of America that are incorrect. Um, actually, I have a friend in grad school right now in England, and she's studying something political science something political science and she's like it's just weird being around all these people who are quote-unquote educated who think that they have a strong understanding of america you know from a very refined and intellectual standpoint that is just absolutely incorrect like it's just incorrect um because they don't see it from the inside and maybe saying that maybe my appraisal of Georgia Maloney in Italian politics, maybe it's totally incorrect. A lot of the things that I researched for this podcast, I had to translate out of Italian. So I'm sure there's stuff being lost uh, in translation. So shout out to all the Italians. If I'm getting anything wrong, definitely uh, comment and let me know and we can discuss it. But basically, Silvio Berlusconi came in and changed Italian politics, I would say, in a very similar fashion to the way that Donald Trump changed American politics. Um polarizing it in a way that seems impossible to undo and bringing to the mainstream hard right and conservative ideas that had been effectively uh, repressed um, through periods of uh, cultural advancement through the civil rights era, era you know, post-World War II, post-civil rights movement, which I think a lot of people under the civil rights movement in America, people don't... Um, have an idea of the ways that that affected the world globally, right? So when major legislation changes in the world's superpowers, whether it's America, whether it's China, whether it's um, Europe, Russia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, like whatever countries, like certain political social changes in one country have a ripple effect across the entire world. So when the war ends in Europe, when civil rights are passed in America, when China um, starts allowing privatization, it starts to shift things globally. And so after all of that, the culture was in a certain place. And now after Silvio Berlusconi, after Donald Trump, after our, our after what's his name, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, something's shifted. And that shift has resulted in Georgia Maloney. Uh, and this 
sort of two-faced type of Italian politics where they're open to participating in the global stage with a Western face, with a quote-unquote respect for rights, with a focus on climate change, but only to the end that it allows them internally to proceed without inhibition. So as long as Georgia comes to America, smiles in Joe Biden's face, says that she's against, um, what's it called? says that she's against Russia, says that she's against China, says that she's willing to work together on global trade and participates in the quint. Uh, the quint is something that I wanted to bring up, um, is essentially an informal decision-making group consisting of the United States and the big four Western European countries, France, Germany, Germany Italy, and the United Kingdom. And it operates as a, um, I'm about to say this word in French, Directoire, directoire, I don't know how to say it, of various entities such as NATO, the OECD, the G7, and the G20, right? So it's basically a cartel. And as long as she operates um, in accordance with that cartel, then she has free reign within her country to do what she wants to do. Some of those things that she wants to do. So the first one, classic conservative move, is cutting welfare benefits to thousands of families. So um, earlier this year, an estimated 170,000 families across Italy received a text message. They did this via text message um, in late July, notifying them that the benefits that they had started to receive during COVID were going to be cut off in the following month. The main welfare benefit was a payment program introduced in 2019 by the government led by Giuseppe Conte. Giuseppe Conte was the um, previous uh, previous prime minister. Uh, and basically, they were sending out Payments. It was essentially UBI. So from September 1st of 2023, those who had been receiving payments of 350 euros per month to be used for job training at the country's unemployment centers were done. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Those who had received the benefits will start to receive only 350 per 350 euros per month. So before they had been receiving uh let me see so it was for the eu citizens that had an income of under nine thousand euros per year and they had savings under six thousands and they didn't own a second property uh that cost more than thirty thousand so anybody could have ended up in that if you had inherited something remember italy is a very very old country so basically, if they were earning less than 780 euros per month, they were able to receive the difference. So if you earned less than 780 euros per month, you could get the difference of that given to you by the government. So this was driven as a this was used as a way to reduce poverty and it was extremely effective. Um, as we know that universal basic income payments are at reducing poverty but what the conservative ideology says right is that people should work and if people receive free money from the government then they won't work and if what some ubi people say is that if people do receive money from the government then they will work it's a little bit confusing but i think what kind of gets lost in the ubi discussion is that UBI is not an, an unemployment policy. 
right? So you can't give someone money to get a job. That doesn't really work. What UBI is, is a poverty policy. It's an anti-poverty policy. And it's a particularly effective anti-child poverty policy because as we know, children cannot work. <laughs> children cannot work. There's a difference between unemployment and poverty. Someone can be unemployed and rich, right? You can be very wealthy and not need a job. You can own properties that give you money and not need a job, et cetera, et cetera. And a different person can be un can be employed and experiencing poverty. We see this in Walmart with like Walmart employees being the biggest segment of actual um, welfare benefit receivers because you can work but still not earn enough money to live in the place where you live or the country that you live in, not even just the city. So... UBI could be a failed employment policy, which they actually saw in Finland that it did not increase employment really, but it is an incredible poverty policy. And with the largest demo of people experiencing poverty being children, primarily because they cannot work, we see that the reduction or cancellation of UBI is very likely to correlate to an increase in child poverty, which is interestingly directly at odds with the quote-unquote think of the children rhetoric often parroted by the maloney government which is a part of their or a part of her a part of their stance against right the lgbt lobby against sex and gender ideology because it's damaging to children what could be more damaging than poverty uh <laughs> inquiring minds want to know um so the UBI is not an effective employment policy, and there is a critical assumption, and there is not a critical assumption that forced poverty by the reduction of UBI will then also turn into employment games. And you wonder, like, how could that be true when it was not true before? When the level of money received from work is not enough to replace a full working income. The level of money received by working is not enough to replace the level determined by the government that a working income should be. So if you're working before and you weren't making that 780 euros per month, what is going to change now that you stopped receiving that? I struggle to see the benefits. And it could be considered that this is just a general state spending policy that needs to be reduced. And you can, I like, you know, countries are in debt. There's, um, she has an interesting stance as far as the development bank. So like I talked about in the last episode, lots of, lots of people, I would say, including myself, kind of blame, excuse me, the banks, TM, the IMF, the European bank, et cetera, the development, development banking as a construct for the place that Greece is in today. We see that those things are connected and it's negative. Interestingly, Maloney is interested in reducing state spending within Italy, but increasing it outside of Italy, using um, EU funds, again, to fund border control, basically, in North Africa. Moreover, when she met with Biden earlier this summer, she said, quote, and let me... Let me just go back up to it so I can really tell you guys exactly what happened. Here we go. That... 
President Biden and Prime Minister Maloney are committed to advance work to evolve the, quote, multilateral development banks, end quote, to make more responsive to shared global challenges like climate change, pandemics, conflict, and fragility through the implementation of critical financial reforms begun under Italy's leadership in the G20 and a review of the climate finance architecture to make it more effective and efficient. What does that really mean? That means that the Maloney government is willing to participate in EU that is willing to participate in the EU agenda um, and willing to participate with Western nations and using the development banks to impose um, austerity. I, I guess is the way that you would the way that you would say it, or basically willing to use Western powers to control lesser nations, control the flow of commerce, control the flow of energy to the benefit of their state, such that they can more effectively implement their own forms of austerity and don't want to use the effort again, but their own forms of austerity and Christian nationalism, hard right conservatism within the country without interference. So they're willing to play ball on the global scale against China, against Russia, against climate change, so long as that they're able to align those resources towards achieving their interstate goals, which are actually quite the opposite of those Western goals, which is achieving independence via fossil fuels from North Africa defeating the climate crisis such that they can also invest money in border patrol to get the migrants out of there and maintain or rebuild um, this um, proto-Roman uh, Christian nationalist identity of Italy that is um, white, Christian, um, heterosexual, um, and interested in the uh, nuclear family model of state building. And so, I come at once again to this question of what makes a country Western? Is it their location? Does a location in the West make you Western? Okay, I guess, yes, you are in the West, maybe you are Western. But does that make you a part of Western ideology or is Western ideology changed, right? Is to believe that Western ideology is pro-human rights, um, pro-civil society, pro-freedoms, um, quote-unquote, those things are actually a myth, right? It's fake. It's something that was developed through uh, multinational NGOs, through PR companies, through film and television, uh, but its actual true intentions were never that. And if we actually look at the behavior of West, quote unquote, Western, quote unquote, developed, quote unquote, civilized nations, if we look at their behavior in the third world, in the underdeveloped world, we see what is actually that their true nature. And really, those things were never true. Okay, so maybe it's not location. Is it a willingness to participate in global trade? Italy's willing to participate in global trade. They just signed a trade agreement with the United States and said that they're willing to engage in bilateral trade. They're willing to move money across the borders and participate in global discussions. Italy is actually going to become the leader of the G7. They will be the president of the 2024 G7 cohort, and they will be in charge of leading this coalition of nations against China, against Russia, 
<laughs> and it's seeming like against migrants from North Africa are coming through North Africa. So is it a willingness to participate that makes you Western? But other countries are also willing to participate, but often they can't because there's bigger players in the way. So maybe that's not it. And then we ask, well, is it civil rights and liberties, right? Is it a civil, a strong civil society that makes you a Western country? And maybe that would be true if we didn't also see that part of Georgia Maloney's platform is a hard, hard um, right turn against the LGBT community of Italy. And one example of this, I'm just realizing I didn't give an example, um, but she has said, quote, that there, Italy is no place for, quote unquote, non-traditional families. Surrogacy is banned in Italy, and the Italian prime minister and her party, the Brothers of Italy, uh, have uh, put up a bill to criminalize Italian citizens that go out of the country to provide surrogacy and have even instructed municipalities to take away the birth certificates, the Italian birth certificates of children that were born via surrogacy out of the country. So in Padua, which is in northern Italy, the denial of same-sex parenthood has taken the drastic turn, and the public prosecutor has challenged 33 birth certificates of children born to lesbian couples dating back as far as 2017. So retroactively challenging the birth certificates. Ooh, I knocked my mic. Retroactively challenging the birth certificates of children that have been living in the country that were born via surrogacy to Italian parents. Now, again, there's a whole other episode that I could get into about surrogacy, adoption, the ethics of it, the legality of it, what does it mean for the society, the right to parenthood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of discussions that to, that could be had, but there's no denying, in my, at least in my opinion, that to retroactively target a child to take away their birth certificate because they were born via surrogate and are being raised by gay parents is a profound act of persecution and homophobia. So what makes a country Western? Do you have the right to be who you are? Do you have the right to have the family that you wish to have? Do you have a right to not live in poverty? What are the rights that you actually have? And maybe we can determine what is a Western country by what country actually provides rights for its citizen. And that changes the um, geographic boundaries of who's in the West and who isn't. I don't know things that I'm, I'm thinking about. I don't really have an answer, but I thought that it was an interesting discussion to be had. And if you go to Italy um, in the next year, if you've been, I, I would love to hear from you and think about, do you see all of this playing out in the streets? Because I didn't think I did until I started really looking into it. And then actually, yeah, like I kind of could. There, There is a, a, a feeling of repression um, that could only come from being beneath um, this type of political dogma i don't even know if that's the word but anyway so great to talk with you guys i'm really excited about putting this episode out and also about season three which i'm going to start recording in january uh which is next month and i think it's going to be really cool look forward to season three probably in um march or april is when the episodes will start coming out 
excuse me, just depending on kind of what happens in February. Uh, but yeah, it's been a great season. Thanks so much for everybody that came on. I really appreciated having you. I hope you guys loved the season. I feel like we like really went deeper. Like we went so much deeper. And I think in season three, I might even have some of the guests from season one back on um, to go even deeper with them. Um, it's been an, uh, a really amazing season. I hope you guys have a wonderful holiday time and a very, very happy new year. This has been Nicholas with Elitist Anthropology. Ciao.